We'll turn then, and let's look on in the book of Exodus. As we continue our study through this marvelous work and look at our God who redeems. And really, as I shared when we started this book, this isn't in a way, this book is a reintroduction to who God is, to get to know Him. And that's most true, perhaps, in this text. This is one of the high points in the book of Exodus, as God calls Moses, but it begins with him revealing what he's like. And so we're going to see that this week, Lord willing, and next week we're going to consider this text, Exodus 3. And then from there, even, uh, I look to jump out for a few weeks and just look at a little bit more about who our God is in light of who he is as the great I am. So you can anticipate that. But as we do, we're coming to encounter a God that really is beyond comprehension. And at that, we need his help. So I'm just going to pray even once more, if you would with me. Bow your head and let's ask for his help. Blessed Lord, you've caused all the holy scriptures to be written for our learning. Grant us that we may in such a way hear them, read, mark, learn, and so inwardly digest your word. That by patience and comfort of your holy scripture, we may embrace and ever hold fast that blessed hope of everlasting life which you have given us in our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name and by whom alone we pray. Amen. Amen. Speaking of introductions, who was that person that you met that one day and then everything in your life from then on changed? Who was that person and what was that day when then you met them, everything in your life, the whole trajectory, what you were about, took another turn? For many of us, you might go back and remember that first time you met your spouse-to-be. I still recall grabbing Erin Dressel, then her bag, as we climbed in with another 40 other college students onto the bus to get to LAX, that's the Los Angeles airport, perhaps the worst one in the United States of America, and then to go to Israel, where we spent the next, what would be, semester. And as we were there in Israel, I got to know this cute girl who loved Jesus, and tolerated me being around her, and that was it. My life was forever changed. Or maybe it was some job connection you made. You you worked with somebody, and then they moved to another company, and they recommended you for a position maybe in their company, or you were at some conference or something, and you bumped into some bigwig in your field, and then that led to vaulting your career, or maybe changing your career is a totally different pursuit. Or certainly, if you're a Christian, who was that person you met that then faithfully shared Christ with you. At that moment, your life, indeed, for an eternity, was forever changed. Namely because, of all things, you met God then. And He changes things in us when we get to know Him. I think we all know those things to be true, and yet there's something different or distinct with our relationship with God, isn't there? I I opened with the story about when I met Aaron my wife, and it's easy to take your spouse for granted, isn't it? Your spouse is always with you, such that, again, you take them for granted. It's easy to lose appreciation for all they mean to you because they're always there. And if that's true about our spouses, that's only multiplied a hundred times with God, is it not? Not only with all due respect is He, to our spouses, that is, is He infinitely more significant and valuable than our spouse, but also God is, if you didn't know, He's invisible. You can't see Him. He never texts you. He never 
posts on your social media feed. He never stops by for a visit, at least very personally and intimately. And besides that, all the words he has spoken to you, they are, in a way, it seems frozen in a book, and in that way, unchanging. And from all of this, there's all kinds of reasons it is easy to take for granted a relationship with God, to easily lose sight of how great He is, how glorious He is, how satisfying He is, and more than this, how easy it is to forget how desperately you need Him. So, over these next few weeks, let's reintroduce ourselves to the one who is God. He is called Yahweh in the Old Testament. He is the great I Am. He is the risen Jesus Christ. Over the next few weeks, we're going to make reintroductions. We're going to be reintroduced to God to learn His name, to rediscover more of what He's like and what He means to us. And in the first place, what we're going to see, and this speaks to our own failings, we're going to see that He is fully sufficient in and of Himself. He needs no help from anyone. He needs nothing. He is perfect. He lacks in nothing. And certainly, He needs nothing from you or is dependent upon anything that you can offer Him. But that is crucial for us, for Him to be God. And it is in that full sufficiency that we'll find this morning and the next few weeks as we turn to Exodus 3. This is where we see in His full sufficiency, this is where our lack gets met, you see. This is where all of our inadequacies get exposed, yes, but they also get met where all our securities are met in the security that is a fully sufficient God. God's full sufficiency in Himself makes up for all of our inadequacies, which means our failures, our failings, our sins, yes, but also then all of the accompanying insecurities, as we know, our fallenness and our guilt. So from this then, as we get reintroduced to this God, we are called to step forward in faithful obedience to His call on your life. Why? Because He is able, not because you are. That's what faith looks like. And we're going to see that through this picture of God interacting, reintroducing Himself to Moses. And we're going to see it in the first place. We get to meet God and we see what He's like when we see this. A holy God calls a fallen man, verses 1 to 5. Immediately before us in the text, as it comes together, we recognize there's this tension This tension exists, namely because what we find about God, if you're going to be in a relationship with Him, you're going to get close to Him, there's a problem. He's holy, and you're not. And we'll find that He's the only one that can overcome that gap. Now, where are we? To remind you from where we've been, where we were last week, we saw as we began, Moses, he gets a fresh start in life. Remember this? He has a new family. He's got a new life. He has a new place where he's living, a new home. He's got family, children, a new job. He's now a shepherd. And he has all kinds of reason, I would think, to even be content. And yet, we talked about it. He has a holy discontent in his bones. It was evident as he named his son Sojourner. He was saying, I'm looking for another home. This isn't it. And nevertheless, as he might have been dissatisfied with where he was, at least in compared sin to the promises of God, he would spend the next 40 years of his life wandering there in a wilderness, chasing after sheep, raising a family, teaching and raising his kids. Now, we know it was 40 years. 
for from Stephen's speech in the New Testament. Remember Stephen, he's the first martyr. If you're curious as to what, what is the Old Testament about and how does it work, go read Stephen's speech really quick in Acts chapter 7, and you'll get a great little overview about the whole history of Israel in some ways, at least many of the high points. But he rehearses for us Moses' life, and he gives us the chronological framework for Moses' whole life, and that way it's pretty easy. Moses spends the first 40 years of his life in Egypt, being raised as a prince in Pharaoh's house, and then he spends the remaining 40 years of that time in the wilderness of Midian, wandering around, having fled from Egypt, and then he's going to spend the next 40 years after that leading the people of God, but we'll not get there yet. So at the end of the 40 years in Midian's wilderness, now he's 80 years old, he's going around minding his own business, he's watching over the sheep, and in this faithful thing he's doing this day and that, next, God interrupts and reintroduces himself to God's people, reintroduces himself really for the first time to Moses, and really reintroduces himself by breaking into the pages once again of history. Well, let's pick it up. We have our humbled shepherd named Moses here in verse 1. Now, Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. He's being faithful in this new job. Let me highlight two things for you. First, I want you to notice that this is just a data point, really. But Moses' father-in-law here is named Jethro in verse 1. And we saw that his name was actually Reuel, at least at the end of chapter 2. So what gives? Why is he Jethro here, but he's Reuel just a few verses before? Well, the explanation, I think, is rather simple. The guy has more than one name. I have two names. How many do you have? That's not too uncommon, especially in those days. This is the same guy who gave away his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. It's the same Furthermore, it seems like Reuel is his proper name or his first name, you might say, and Jethro is something more like a title, a designation or significance. Either way, it's not as if Moses, who ends up writing this account, remembered his father-in-law's name and then decided, because he forgot, to change it or make it up once he got to chapter 3. No, it's the same guy. He has two names, and those are brought before us here. Now, with that contention aside... We notice, what is Moses up to? He's a shepherd. He's keeping the flock. And this underscores for us just once again how far, at least in the eyes of Egypt, Moses has now fallen. He's been humbled big time. And we draw that out because what does he do now? He's a shepherd. Do you remember what Egyptians think about shepherds? If you go back to the book of Genesis, when Jacob and his sons are coming into Egypt, Pharaoh doesn't want them anywhere near him because they're shepherds. The Egyptians saw the occupation of being a shepherd as beneath them. It was dirty. It was gross. It was being like the, the trash people of society. They, they don't want them near them. To an Egyptian, this was the most despicable job you could have as being a shepherd. And so now we have here, formerly, so to speak, the prince of Egypt wandering around in a lost wilderness for 40 years looking after dirty animals. In summary, before the world, and perhaps before Moses himself, who was raised in Pharaoh's house, Moses is no one of any significance. And so we find, again, back to verse 1, Moses led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Now, Mount Horeb also goes by another name, a more famous name you've probably heard of, Mount Sinai. This is the same place, the same location. 
This is the very mountain when Moses gets to lead Israel out of Egypt. This is the mountain they will come to to meet God. Of course, at this time, it wasn't yet really known as the mountain of God. Moses is looking forward as he identifies for you what the mountain is to call it the mountain of God. But the point is, God is there. But also the point is, Moses didn't know that. He's just shepherding his flock, going around. He's just, as he goes to the other side of this mountain, he's just trying to find a good place for his sheep to eat. He's not looking for God is the point. But God comes looking for him and calls him. Verse 2. And the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. Now, surely this was a sight to see, but not because there was some fire. There was fires, I'm sure, in this wilderness all the time. You can think about, and by comparison, such an arid place like Southern California, where we get fires repeatedly. They're not uncommon there. But something about this fire is different. It catches Moses' eye. As he looks at it and notices it, he sees it doesn't burn out, and nor does it burn anything up. This is strange. And with this, his attention, his curiosity is piqued. He goes to investigate. Verse 3. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight. Why? The bush is not burned. Indeed, this is strange. This is inexplicable. This is like nothing you've ever seen. To have a fire that doesn't burn anything, and it keeps burning, and keeps burning, and never goes out. It's like it is a power source all to itself. It's a fire that's not dependent on anything. It has its own self-generating power. It is self-existent. And in this way, also, it looks eternal. For it doesn't burn up anything, it can last forever. You know, every fire or campfire you have started, well, eventually it'll burn out once all of the fuel of the wood is consumed, but not in this case. This fire keeps going. It's extraordinary. But even as Moses approaches, he in no way could anticipate how extraordinary this sight would be as he gets closer. So now having got his attention, God calls to him. Verse 4. When the Lord saw that Moses turned aside to see, God called out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, oh, here I am. And that's good. He froze right in his tracks too. Because apparently getting any closer was going to be quite dangerous. Look at verse 5. God then warns him. He said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. That sounds dangerous. This is the first time in the Bible we see any location properly called a holy space or holy ground. Now, what does this mean? Well, just deal first with that word holy. What does holy mean? It means that something's separate, something's distinct. It's different than anything else maybe you've known. It's special in that way. In every way, it's not ordinary, and nor should it be treated or looked at as something ordinary. Now, it's such a religious word, holy, it's hard to get a grip on what this really means as it references to God, that He's holy, even holy, holy, holy. But what's something in our life that might be holy, if we could use a lowercase h, if you know what I mean by this? Well, think about, if you have them, fine china dishes. Does anyone have those still in their home? I won't look, and no hands raised. It's okay. You can keep your heads down. But who has fine china in their home? We do. And it's very special. It's set apart. It doesn't dwell with the other dishes that are in our house. 
It sits in its own hutch by itself to just mainly be looked at from afar behind a glass case to be sure no kids ever touch it. And when do these plates see the light of the kitchen? Once a year, maybe, Easter, Thanksgiving, Christmas, dinner. Because, see, they're too special for anything else and too expensive and too breakable. You certainly won't see us fetch the china this afternoon as we're trying to warm up old pizza in the microwave. No, we have what are called paper plates for that, let alone a hot dog. You don't put that on fine china. It's far too special. We have everyday dishes or paper plates for those things, for everyday ordinary things. Well, to then amp up the parallel, this is holy ground. It's not for ordinary people and ordinary things to come in contact with, unless you're holy and special like it is. Now, what makes this holy ground? What makes it so special? It's because God is there, the holy God. For note this, and this is interesting, in verse 2, we heard about the angel of the Lord. Do you see that there? The angel of the Lord, or the angel of Yahweh is God's name, appeared in the burning bush. But from that point forward through the rest of this account, we don't hear any more about an angel, but what do we hear? We hear the Lord himself talking. We hear the Lord himself engaging and there with Moses, for God is there. Now, how does this work? Well, understand in the first place, the word angel in the Hebrew, just most fundamentally, it's just a messenger. But there's something so special about this messenger. He is no normal messenger. He is one that brings the very presence of God with him, dare I say, because he is God himself. I submit to you, this is Christ incarnate, or not incarnate, but Christ appearing before he comes. This is the son, what we call a Christophany, God appearing and speaking to Moses. The point is, God is here. And because God is here, the ground is sanctified. And Moses has stumbled into holy ground. Moses, who is a sinner, think unholy or unfit. And so that means for him, this is the most dangerous place to be in creation. The ordinary cannot come and approach the holy, the different, the sanctified ground of God's holiness. If you're going to get close, you have to be extraordinary or different and special as God is in His holy perfection. That's the only way you can get close. I think one of the best pictures of this is in another call of God when He's calling a prophet to Himself, and that's in the book of Isaiah. You know this story, but it is so glorious. We must look at it once more. Turn with me in your Bible to the book of Isaiah. If you're flipping through a book of the Bible... You know, flop open about midway, you're in Psalms, and go right a little bit longer. You'll hit Isaiah, and we'll be in Isaiah chapter 6. This is perhaps the most vivid picture or encounter in the Bible of a holy God peering before a man who sees his unholiness. So, as it begins... Isaiah gets this vision. He sees God, the Lord, seated on a throne, high and lifted up. The train of his robe fills the temple. You know, your train was a sign, you know, the longness of your robe was a sign of how majestic you were. Well, even the very hem of this king's robe fills the whole place. He's unfathomably significant and huge. 
And he's so big, angels surround him, fiery beings, the seraphim. And what do they say through an eternity, it appears? Verse 3, and one of them called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Yahweh of hosts, of armies. The whole earth is full of his glory. You notice these angels cannot even look on his holiness. They cover his, their faces with wings. And then Isaiah ends up here, seeing something he's not sure he wanted to see. He understands immediately in that declaration, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, that this holy God cannot tolerate, cannot accommodate unholy men in any measure, lest he diminish his holiness. And the big problem is, is, is once he does that, he's no longer God. He cannot do this. And so Isaiah realizes his doom as the thresholds of the foundations shake of the temple. He cries out in verse 5. And I said, woe is me. I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. This is his doom. Because he knows he's not holy. Evidenced by his, even by his speech. He has sinful, unholy, unclean, disobedient lips. Let alone all those around him. They're not fit for God's presence. So he understands God's holiness should rightly consume him. And that's the thing. This is what we see through Scripture. If there was a place before that you could talk about, before this episode with Moses, if there was a place you could talk about as being the holy ground, it would have been the Garden of Eden in the very beginning, remember? You had Adam and Eve living there in perfect harmony with this world, reigning over it as God had commanded them. And then God would come visit them in His holiness and in His perfection. And Adam and Eve enjoyed fellowship, interaction with God. But then what happened? Adam sinned. Disobeyed God, rejected His holiness, tried to be holy on His own. And from then, Adam and Eve, lest they too be destroyed, are driven out of the Garden of Eden. And that relationship with God has been severed. The gateway back to the garden was guarded by a flaming sword and an angel, lest any sinner and unholy thing try and pass back into the holiness of God. Having stumbled upon God's holiness, like accidentally coming upon a room you have no authority or business being in. For Isaiah, he's just called into this. What then are you supposed to do? What hope is there for us to relate to a holy God like this? Well, we read back here still with Isaiah. And we see the Lord provides. He provides a way. He provides it through this angel, the seraphim. He says in verse 6, A seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal, which he had taken with his tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth, his lips, his unholy lips, right? And when he did this, this is the word the messenger sends. Behold, verse 7, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. This is how the unholy people get with the holy God. you got to have an atonement. You have to have a covering. You have to have a death in the place for your sins that the sin gets dealt with and put away. That's the only way. 
You need all your sins removed. His holiness cannot endure unholiness. He must in his perfection reflexively destroy it. In this way, your sins are like weights that hang on you as you're trying to swim in the ocean of God's holiness. Each one is heavy enough to bring your soul right down to the very bottom and drown you. And so you need to have all of those sins taken off. And more than this, to never cling to you again, you need them taken by someone else to die for you, to take that wrath. And of course, this is the glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ. He takes all the sins. He bears them. We read about it and heard it in Isaiah. He carries them. He was crushed for us. His death counts for us, for our unholinesses, our sins. That we might forever, we might forever, mind you, be as holy as Christ is. To see our God. To never be driven from His presence. But that's the only way you can get close. Can you this morning approach a holy God? Are you ready to meet Him? Because I confess to you and I warn you, do not dare try it without the covering of Christ. And none of us knows when we're going to meet Him. Could He come in a moment? Might we be ushered into eternity in a moment this afternoon? You don't know. But there's only one refuge, and there is a refuge. And He's more than sufficient for this task, the righteousness and death of Jesus Christ. Oh, trust Him this morning. Look to Him. Confess your sins to Him. Find a refuge with Him. There's only hope with Him. Back to the Exodus, though. There's no sacrifice that we can make. And Moses is not prepared to make one, nor is he asked to make one. He's simply asked to do this. Take off your shoes. In the immediacy of his situation, this is what God tells him. Remove your sandals. This in the ancient Near East, this was a sign of respect. That you're in the presence of one who is worthy of honor. Oh, and there's one more thing you can do, Moses. Don't get too close. Keep your distance. But this is the astounding thing. Even in light of all of God's holiness and all of His perfection and all of His power and all of our sinfulness, and even for Moses, yet in light of all of this, God still calls him. Fallen though he is. Unholy though he is. It's not as if this whole burning bush thing, you know, God set it up to to catch Moses' attention catch someone's attention. It's not as if he set it up to really find that really righteous, sincere shepherd out there. And then, oh no, Moses saw it instead. Oh, I got Moses. I was going for that really more righteous guy. Oh no, what do I do? This wasn't God's plan. God knew Moses from the very beginning. He called him on purpose. He knew him better than really Moses knows himself. That means God knew Moses' sins too, as he calls it. He knows Moses' pride. He knows, his, he knows Moses' tendency to fear. He knows Moses' tendency to flee. He knows of Moses' murder of the Egyptian. And yet God still calls him. He still calls the fallen man anyway. Don't you see God always works like this? 
He's always calling the fallen, stumbling sinners to turn, find mercy, follow his commands, and be commissioned into his service. That's always how it works. Think of the example of Paul the Apostle. Despite his horrendous sins, he opposed Christ, he persecuted the church, he's approving of the death of Christians, and yet he's shown mercy and forgiven, and then he's put out into ministry. God, didn't you have somebody better in mind? No, because why? God was telling us something, and here, Paul gives evidence to it in his own testimony. This is 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. Why would God choose and use a murderer, an opposer to his church? Why? To prove this point, that the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And then Paul says, and I'm the worst of them. And why would God do that? Paul continues, I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, the worst, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who will believe in him for eternal life. In other words, to discourage any sinner how desperate your sin is, it can't be as bad as mine and he forgave me. If Paul the persecutor can be forgiven and mobilized for ministry, can't you? If Moses, the murderer, can be forgiven and used of God, can he not use you? If David, the murderer and adulterer, can be forgiven can he still and still be used of God, can he not use you? Oh, he can, because that's what he does. Why? He's a God of grace, that's why. Making up for our lack. Now, it is true, depending on your past, depending on your sins and your situation, you might be forgiven by God, but that doesn't mean every avenue of service and ministry is then open to you. David had real consequences in his life because of his sin. And yet, he was still useful to God in the situation he was in. And God even knew all of that from the very beginning. That did not slow the amount of grace God gave to him. Nor did it inhibit the kind of good that God had called David to work. He knows all these things. And he can still weave those into his great plan. He knows it all, and He still called you, and He still redeemed you, and He still is mobilizing you to work for Him. So what does this mean? At the very least, it means this. Whatever sin that you are raging against battling now, whatever sin, as I just even say that, the Spirit is bringing to your mind, oh, I really struggle with this, or some sin that's blotched your past, whatever it is, it means this, Christ isn't done with you. Despite that, he can still use you. He still calls you into fellowship and he still calls you into faithfulness to the thing he has called you to. So the point is, don't let your sins of the past define you because they don't with God. Actually, we hear about this in the promise of the new covenant. We read it in Hebrews chapter 10. In Christ, your sins have so been dealt with, the omniscient God who knows everything somehow forgets them. Don't let your sins in your past define you, especially to hinder you and shut you up from proclaiming to any who will listen, guess what? Jesus Christ came to save sinners. He even saved me. And I messed up big time so he can save you. Come. Is his cross not that powerful to do that? Does not God want to magnify his Christ and his cross this way? Oh, he does. May we testify, a holy God can call fallen men because of the grace of Christ. 
Next. We see this about our God. He's a faithful God who conscripts a failed man, verses 6 to 10. This is kind of like turning the diamond of God's greatness, and we're just turning it slightly to see more of the refracting glory of His light through this. Not only does God's full sufficiency take care of our sins, but it also takes care of our failures, our, our missteps, our ways that we have failed Him. God now conscripts into His service this tried but failed man, Moses. But here's the hope. It's in a God who's faithful, not in our faithlessness. Verse 6. And He said, so God now speaking, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God so to clarify things for Moses, he's saying, I'm the God that you always heard about as a kid, Moses. I'm the God that your father taught you about when you were just a little one. I'm the God that makes sense of why your parents didn't immediately put you in the river. I'm the God your dad and mom passed on to you as they passed on the promises of God given to our forefathers, your forefathers, Abraham to Isaac and to Jacob. And that's significant. But try and put yourself in Moses. Well, he's not wearing sandals anymore. His bare feet for a second here. Because those promises, those great promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that he will bless them, make them a nation, give them a land, have fellowship with them as their own God. I'm in Exodus 3. You know, you just flip over a page or two and you're right there in Genesis where these promises are given. But when those promises were first given to Abraham, that was 700 years before this date with Moses. That's a long time. And the most recent update on those promises was given to Jacob in Genesis 46. That was 400 years before this moment, again, with Moses. These are old promises that have seemed to lie dormant for a long, long time. While God's people crying out under the lash in suffering, and even their deliverer, Moses, was wandering out fearfully in the wilderness for 40 years. And yet, even through all that, God had not forgotten. As we read in chapter 2, the end of chapter 2, remember that? As God's people cried out in their anguish, they cried out for help, and the cry of their rescue came up to God, and then God heard. They prayed, and God moved. And it says then, and God remembered His covenant, His promise. To use the word picture of remembering with God, who always knows, but it's a picture that he puts it in the forefront of his mind. He's ready to act and right on time. That's the God now talking to you, Moses. That's the God who's speaking with you. He's the God of promises who will prove and fulfill every last one. And at this, Moses rightly fears God and shields his face. He knows he's not worthy to look at this God. And this is good news, for now we see that Moses is once again beginning to fear God. What was the last thing we saw Moses fearing in the text? He was fearing Pharaoh when his, you know, undercover assassination of the Egyptian got discovered. Moses got afraid and he ran. He was fearful of Pharaoh and all that Pharaoh could do. Well, now once again, he's beginning to fear God more. God is rightly becoming. He's getting an accurate picture of God. God's becoming as big as He really is in Moses' mind, and it's putting Pharaoh into perspective. That's what the fear of God means. Faith is being revived. 
And at this then, God begins to unveil for Moses, first his heart, but then what God's plans are. Verse 7, then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. And I've heard their cry because of the taskmasters. I know their suffering. The way that's in the Hebrew there in verse 7, I have surely seen. It's, he's intimately aware of all of those details. He wasn't, despite the long wait, he wasn't aloof. He wasn't unaware. He hadn't forgotten. He knows and he cares. He loves them. And he's going to move heaven and earth to save them. Verse 8, as he then explains his plan. God says, I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and bring them out of a land or to a land that is good and broad, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. We'll get to them later. But just notice this first. God is bending heaven down to come rescue his people. He's coming to intervene, to step forward in, on his promises. And what does it mean to deliver but to snatch out from danger and suffering? He is a Savior coming from heaven to save. Do we know of that story before? Well, we see it first here in the Exodus. Of course, looking forward, God literally came down, then bored as a man to deliver and save His people from their sins. And it was all pictured for us first here as God's coming down to save His people, to save them from the harsh hand and whip of the Egyptians. But more than this, as he explains, he's not merely going to save them from something bad, but he's delivering them over to something good. And that just displays the goodness of our God. He's got it all figured out to care for his people from soup to nuts, the whole thing. You know, it's not, oh, he delivers them out of Egypt, and then he just kind of stands with them at the edge of Egypt like, well, I hope that goes okay. That looks like a pretty harsh wilderness, I must say. Hope you make it to the promised land. No. He walks with them every step of the way and to then give them the promised land. These long ago promises given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they're coming to full bloom now right before Moses' eyes. And remember, Moses had been longing for that day. That's why he named his son Sojourner or Wanderer. They weren't home yet. He was longing for the promises of God to bring him home. It's as if he's hearing this from God. This is awesome. I can't wait. You're coming down to save us? All right. Verse 9, and now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. Can you hear Moses like, yeah, yeah, it is. All right, God's coming in. Continue on, verse 9. And I've also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Oh, man, I know God is horrible. You should have seen it happen. I was there. I just wanted to forget about it. That's why I've been running around in the wilderness. I'm so glad you're finally coming to do something about it, God. And then Moses, or excuse me, the Lord says this to Moses in verse 10. Come, I'm sending you to Pharaoh that you would bring up my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. I can imagine Moses saying, uh, excuse me? You misspoke, didn't you? Don't you get, I've been there, done that. Didn't go so well. I failed colossally. And it's interesting, from this point to the middle of chapter 4, that's where things turn. Moses just throwing up all these objections at God about why Moses shouldn't be the man for this job. Look at verse 11 of chapter 3. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And then verse 13, he's like, I don't even really know who's sending me. What's your name? And then you go on into chapter 4. He, he objects 
Verse 1, what if they don't believe in me when I tell them? And then verse 10, but Moses said to the Lord, oh, my Lord, I'm not eloquent. I'm slow of speech. I'm slow of tongue. And then finally, in verse 13 of chapter 4, Moses is just like, listen, send anybody else. Just don't send me. Now, what accounts for Moses' reticence here? In part, I'd like to think it's an honest assessment of his abilities. Who is he to go up against probably the strongest army in the world at this time to try and get his people out of there? I mean, he discovered he has no power for this. He discovered that 40 years ago. But more than this, I think in his soul even, you might say, he was smarting. He had tried all of this before, and he had failed colossally. He tried liberating God's people, and God's people rejected him. Remember, who are you? Who made you ruler over us? And truth be told, it might have very well been the Jews themselves who narked on Moses to the Egyptian authorities, lest they get beaten more. Oh, it was that Moses guy. It wasn't our fault. God, listen, I've been there, done that. It didn't work. We failed big time. And now I'm 40 years older. Moses is 80 at this point. I'm 40 years past my prime. I couldn't do it then. No way I can do it now. And yet, despite his previous failures, despite all of his weakness, what happens? God calls him anyway. Because as Moses is very soon going to intimately discover, why does God do it this way? Because it's not about you, Moses. It's about God. It's about what can God do? Is God's strength so weak that he can't work through the failures of Moses or David or Peter or Rick or fill your name in the blank? Of course he can, and he will. Why? And this goes back to the beginning here. He's a faithful God who has made promises, and he will deliver, and no weakness of man can stop him, not even yours. Praise God. So often, like here with Moses, we see, maybe even our own lives, how the Lord leverages those failures and actually to make His servants more effective, more useful for His kingdom. But to reckon with that, to even see that come true in our own life, you have to remember two things. You have to bring them to the forefront of your mind all the time. What are they? Number one, service, usefulness to the Lord isn't about you. It's not about you being adequate. It's not about you being sufficient or able. The issue is, is he able? Is he sufficient? Can he do this? Is he strong enough? But second, related to that, what has God promised? That's the other thing you need to remember. Has he not promised to build his church? Has he not promised to save sinners that look to Christ? Has He not promised to save sinners that hear the gospel as we speak it? Has He not promised to mature the saints through the ministry of the, the Word that can be sent out in all multifaceted of ways? Has He not promised? Is He not faithful? And if He is, that means He can overcome all of your failures in the beginning to do it. Have you sidelined yourself for ministry because you failed before? Because you tried it, and then something went wrong, and you're just like, forget it. You know, you tried to share the gospel with somebody, and they 
somebody and they got really mad and offended and yelled at you and stormed back in the restaurant? Hypothetical situation. You were trying to lead someone in a Bible study and it went so bad because they left more confused than when you started? Again, totally hypothetical. Did you try and lead family devotions? Because you're really juiced after the sermon and you're like, oh, I can't wait to share this with my kids. And then it totally flopped. You tried singing a hymn and something else came out. Kids were all over the place. By the end, you were like, I'm bored. I can't imagine they're not bored. Or how about this? Maybe you tried public speaking, like preaching the gospel or, or teaching, and you bombed. Like it went horrible. Can I confess something to you? The first time that I taught publicly, I was a senior in high school. I was already enrolled in Bible college to be a pastor. And after I taught at this senior high school retreat, my youth pastor came up to me and said something like, dude, he was a surfer from Southern California, dude, I think you might have the gift of unclarity. (laughs) No one in the room had any idea about anything you said. You were passionate, that was good, but that's where it ended. Or maybe you tried to host some folks in your home for fellowship and encouragement and just didn't go well for whatever reason. You just feel like a failure. And so you're like, why bother? Someone else can do that stuff. I'm not gifted for that. I have the anti-Midas touch. Whatever I touch in ministry, it just goes horrible. Better just to stay on the fringes, not get in anyone's way. Better just not get involved at all. No, that's not the right response. And why not? Because that's not a faith-filled response to a faithful God. Who? What is this God like? Many times He will use our failures to bring out greater successes, actually. In our weakness, we find strength. Why? Because then He gets all the glory for it. Don't you see? He gets the credit, not me for teaching, not you for doing ministry, but He does. Because get this, just like Moses, if He pursues you, and he calls you by grace into relationship with him, he is then calling you into ministry. Maybe not full-time pastoral ministry, sure. But every Christian is called to equip the body and speak about Christ. And what does that mean? Everybody in this room is in some measure or bit a failure, but every failure then is called by Christ and equipped for God for the work of ministry. That includes you if you're in him. So before you give me more of your objections why you've been sitting on the sidelines, you need to think about and remember, well, what has God promised? Is He not faithful? Will He not build His church? Can He not use failures too? And indeed, it's when we see our failure and our weakness, that's where we are opening up the space for grace to come in, to His power to make us strong. Trust Him. So this week, take one step out, out of the sidelines and into the church field, so to speak, and encourage and help your brothers and sisters look to Christ. And how do we do that? What am I supposed to say? What am I supposed to remind them of? Well, a whole host of things, I'm sure. But one thing you can certainly do is you keep pointing us to Christ. That's what we need most of all. To His cross, to the forgiveness that He offers because He died for our sins. He's rose for us. Remind them that He's interceding for us. Failures we are right now. To remind one another, our standing rests with Him and Him alone, those hidden Christ. I love the way the Apostle Paul puts that as he writes to the Corinthian church. Just notice what he says about all that Jesus is for us. 
He says this in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness from God, and sanctification from God, and redemption from God, is the idea. You didn't have the wisdom, the righteousness, the sanctification, and redemption on your own. You got it as a gift, and Christ fully has met it. We needed all those things from God, and by faith, what Christ has done, we have them. But we only have them because of this cross. So let's remind one another of that, even now together, as we partake of this table.